how to use whatever it is, and then I'll go back to the directions just to confirm or if I need a little bit of help to make sure I'm doing it right. Uh, the other day, I got a climbing carabiner. Uh, it's the metal clip that you attach to a, a climbing rope, you attach a harness to a rope. Uh, it's really a very simple tool. It's something I could probably hand to Titus and Rebecca, and they'd have it figured out in a couple of minutes, especially if they saw me, saw me do it once. Uh, but simple as it is, it was shipped to me with a small book of instructions written in about a dozen different languages. There were, there were pictures, there were diagrams, and there were a multitude of instructions explaining how this carabiner was designed, how much weight it could hold, the way it was supposed to be installed, and a lot of warnings about how not to use it. Uh, the directions made it abundantly clear to me that it was capable of doing far more than what I needed to do. Uh, the company that made this device wants me to enjoy it, but they're also very clear about how I'm meant to enjoy it. Because failure to listen to those directions, failure to use it the right way, can have massive consequences. That's why they went to the trouble of attaching that book, stapling it, so you had to pry it off uh, to make sure you have it. This piece of equipment is a good gift to be enjoyed, but it's also something that needs to be enjoyed the right way. God made man in his own image, in his likeness, for his own glory and for our joy. As he made his world from the fish in the sea to the birds in the air to the animals that roam the earth to mankind, which he set up to steward his creation, God, we are told in Genesis, took delight in what he had made. He blessed it. He commanded his creatures to multiply and fill the earth. But even as God delighted in creating these good things and blessing his creatures, he also instructed his creatures, and specifically us, in how to enjoy those good blessings that he had made. His instructions ensure that we enjoy his good gifts the right way. And that's what we're looking at this morning as we come to Deuteronomy 6. As I mentioned last week, the book of Deuteronomy is a book that is focused on teaching its readers the way of holiness. These are the words of Moses, which he spoke to the people of Israel as they were preparing to enter the land that, he, that God had promised to give to them. And these instructions, this is Moses reminding the people of what was written in the law, explaining the purpose of it to them, the heart of it, exhorting them to live by the law in the land they were about to receive so that they could thrive in it. The commands of God are for our good. They are commands from holiness for holiness. They are for our flourishing. They are not intended to restrict our freedom. They are meant rather to equip us to live in freedom. And that is what we're going to be looking at in our passage this morning. As we see this, we, we learn how God, God's commands teach us to live and enjoy God's good blessings. So that's what we're looking at, how to enjoy God's good gifts. So let's begin by reading our passage this morning. If you will, please stand with me as I read God's word, starting in verse 10 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, reading through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, 
and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God commanded you, then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against, against Pharaoh and against all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, there are a number of lessons that we're meant to take with us from this passage each having to do with relating to God and his gracious gifts the right way. This is a a very practical passage for us, as it was for Israel, because Moses intends to teach us how we are to enjoy God's good gifts in the right way, to enjoy them to the fullest. When, When Moses first said these things, he was preparing Israel to go in and receive the promised land. It was a good land. But as he does... He also makes it abundantly apparent that something is meant to that this is something there's something to be meant to be practiced by all generations, by all of God's people. And in fact, what Moses says here can be found throughout the, the, the teachings of the New Testament and the writings of Paul, James, and John, all showing us, teaching us how we are to live to the fullest, enjoying God's good gifts in a way that brings worship and praise and glory to him. So to equip us to enjoy God's good gifts, Moses makes three points to us about how to enjoy those blessings. First, he shows us that we are to receive and enjoy the blessings in our lives as good gifts from the Lord. God is the source of all these good gifts, and the gifts that he gives to his children are good. Second, we enjoy the blessings that God has given to the fullest when we enjoy them the way that God has purpose for us to enjoy them. So we enjoy these blessings the way God means for them to be enjoyed. 
And third, we enjoy these blessings by the grace God gives us as his redeemed people. We can only enjoy these things to the fullest when we rest in God's work of redemptive grace. So the main idea of this passage is enjoy God's good gifts by enjoying them God's way. We'll be looking at what that looks like uh, in these in three points, remembering that God is the source of these good gifts, receiving them and enjoying him, them as he has instructed us, and receiving them, receiving these riches uh, in, the, in the grace of redemption. So let's begin by looking at God as the giver of all good gifts. In the book of James 1, uh, verses 16 and 17, we are told, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James's point is quite clear and simple. God is the source of every blessing in your life. He is the gracious fountain from which every good thing and every perfect thing in your life flows. He never varies in this. He never changes. The reason that you did not have to question or doubt whether or not the sun was going to rise this morning is because God delights as a loving father who never changes in his excellence or in his glory to make it rise. All these good things are from a loving father. Now, James begins that. We usually just kind of skip to verse 17 and just quote God as the source of these things. But James actually starts his statement here, his instruction, with warning us not to be deceived. And the reason he does that is because it is far too easy for us to forget this simple fact, to start to look at the blessings in our lives as something that is warranted by the work of our own hands, to feel entitled to these things, to overestimate our strength and our ability to begin to take credit for those blessings. We are easily swayed to rely on what we can see and hear and taste and touch to bring us satisfaction, to work for that instead of to the Lord. So when James says that, uh, that the credit for those things belongs to God, he means for us to remind ourselves on a daily basis that all these things, the credit for those things goes to the Lord. We need this warning. Because we are very much like our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve, who took the paradise of Eden for granted and fell to temptation by believing the lie that they could be happier if they took matters into their own hands, if they took steps to take God's throne for themselves. That is why James begins by warning us, do not be deceived. And it is the same reason that Moses spoke these words to the nation of Israel as they were getting ready to enter the land and receive the riches God had prepared for them. The land of Canaan represented more than just a place for Israel to live. It was part of the promise, part of his covenant with them, which he had made hundreds of years before this moment. When God first called Abraham out from the house of his father, he told Abraham, that he would make him the father of many peoples. He was known as Abram. God changes his name to Abraham to make that point of that promise to him. So he called Abraham to go, to leave his family, to go to a land he said he would show him, which he would give him as an inheritance for his children. That promise 
got handed down to Abraham's son Isaac, and then to his son Jacob, and then to his sons, the heads of the tribes of Israel. Each of them got to experience a taste of the promise, but they didn't get to receive the fulfillment of that promise in their lifetime. It was an inheritance that God had reserved for those who were coming after them. And now that time had come. That's the significance of what is happening here. So understand that this moment in Israel's history is bigger than them just getting to come out of wandering in the wilderness. It's, it's Israel getting to receive the covenant blessing God promised to give to their fathers and prepared for them to receive. It's finally happening. And Moses is making sure that as the people get to receive this gift, that they receive it in a right way. And he does that in two ways. First, he makes sure that they understand that the blessing they're about to receive is from God. The blessing is from God. And the second thing that he does is he makes sure that they understand how rich and how good this blessing is. This is, this is all part of a warning that Moses gives in, ver- in the first part of verse 12, saying not to forget the Lord who brought the people out of Egypt. Just as James warns us not to be deceived, so we see Moses warning the people of Israel not to be deceived themselves, not to become victims to wealth, or really, we should clarify, to their own corruption. To understand why we need to be so attentive to the fact that all blessings in our lives are from God and that they are good blessings, we need to understand the danger that faces us. It is not a danger with the blessings themselves. Rather, it is a danger that emerges from within ourselves, from within our sinful flesh. Moses lists four things that the people are about to get. They're about to receive good cities. They're about to receive houses that are full of good things, all the good things they could want. They're going to receive wells and cisterns that they didn't have to dig. And they're going to receive vineyards and olive trees that are rich with harvest. Everything that Israel needed to live and thrive, everything needed to be set up for their society and for civilization, for them to grow and develop as a people in this new land, it has been given to them. God has provided it for them, and they didn't have to work for a single thing. It truly is an inheritance. What Moses is describing, it's reminiscent. It's just like Eden where Adam and Eve received everything they needed to live and prosper, living with each other and with the Lord in peace. This is good stuff. The problem is that God knew and Moses knew that once the people had taken possession of these cities, once they had moved into these new homes, once they had drunk from these cisterns and filled their bellies with good food, they were going to be tempted to go astray. They were going to be tempted to wander. You see, fullness tends to lead to forgetfulness. Fullness tends to lead to forgetfulness. Our fallen human nature tends to place a premium on comfort, on those things that satisfy our needs. And our tendency is to forget that God is the source of all those blessings and that they are meant to be a means for enjoying and loving him. So Moses warns the people here, be on your guard, because he knows that once the wars stop, once the enemy nations have been pushed out of this land, a new, in some ways more potent enemy, would take its place in the prosperity. 
Moses knew that as the people settled in, they would start to look at the nations around them, and they would begin to desire to look like that, to go after other gods, and to pursue evil desires, to use the blessings for wrong ends, things that had been given to them by God out of the measure of his grace to be used for selfish things. Brothers and sisters, do not underestimate the power of the world to lure you away after it. The world has an appeal to us, going all the way back to the sin of Adam. We are all born with it. We are all marked with it. The allure of the world is something that appeals to our eyes naturally. We, we have a nature that is corrupt, that has a taste for the world and the things of the world, which is eager to make the riches of the world our treasure, even though it is a temporary treasure. The world baits us in with empty promises that we will be satisfied and happy if we fill ourselves with the things that it has to offer. It will threaten us by telling us we may lose those comforts that we have grown to enjoy if we do not give in to more. It will corrupt us by giving us a love for the things that are good, but which were never meant to be ultimate. In his book, The World Conquered by the Faithful Christian, Richard Alleen states, the victory which the children of God gain by the grace of God over the world consists in a power to possess the things of the world without plus placing their happiness in them. We do that in part by receiving every blessing in our life as a gift from God. We let every blessing that comes into our life direct our eyes heavenward rather than to the earth. We do that by enjoying that blessing to his glory, not as an ultimate thing, but as a tool, as a means to show the greater glory of our God. We live with our hearts set on him so that whether we have little or whether we have much, whether we have wealth or whether we have poverty, whether we have health or whether we have sickness, we are always full because our treasure is in the gift giver. Moses drives two things home here. He makes it abundantly clear that the whole reason that Israel's receiving any of this was because it was God's delight in giving them those things. Once the people forgot that the blessings came from the Lord, Moses knew they would start to wander from him into other things, into other gods who would promise things to them that, that looked good, but which in the end could only bring destruction. In order to enjoy God's gifts rightly, we have to first receive them with thanksgiving. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7 say, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, so live this way, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thankfulness. When we receive God's good gifts in thanksgiving to God, our hearts are tied to him, tethered to him. And that keeps us from wandering after the world and its desires. When we satisfy our hearts in God, we are insulated from the allure of idolatry because we see and savor him as the one who fills us with his own joy. And we are thus equipped to face and overcome the world in the victory that Christ has secured for us. 
The, the second thing that Moses drives home here is the goodness of God's blessings. As we read Moses' account of the land, you get this picture of this place is truly a paradise. I don't have to go dig the holes to have water. I don't have to drink out of dirty holes. This is established wells. I have vineyards that are already planted for me. The produce is ready to go. I have a home already furnished, ready to go. I have cities that have already been built and established, strongholds to run into and be protected. These are good gifts. God does not give his people second best. In Romans 8, 32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? That is why Christ says to his followers, to his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. God will give you what you need when you need it and he will give you good things. If we ever doubt the goodness of God's gifts or of what he sovereignly withholds from us, the allure of the world will be overpowering to us. This is how Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve with the forbidden fruit. He made them doubt God's goodness and his integrity. He told them that the reason God had forbidden them to eat of this is because he knew that in the day that they did that, they would be like him. And God didn't want them to do that. He told them that God was holding out on them that they would not really die, that God was lying to them. And rather than believing the God who made them, they believed the lie that came from the serpent's mouth. They stretched out their hand, they took the fruit, believing that they could be happier. And they already were, were, even though they were living in paradise, if only they disobeyed God's command. That That is the way that Satan's temptation works. Friends, sin is a, is a bitter poison which is sweet at first, but which is deadly after. So if we are to prevail over its allure, then we must remember that God is the source of every blessing, and we must content ourselves in the knowledge that he gives us the best. He gives us what we need when we need it. He gives us himself And he also gives us everything else we need. We enjoy the good gifts of God rightly when we first remember that every blessing in our life is from him and that whatever he gives, he gives out of his righteousness because he loves us. He gives us goodness. This is key to living with thanksgiving. This is key to fighting sin and the allure of the world. This is the shield that protects God's people from every fear and anxiety. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He is a loving father who gives us everything we need in his amazing wisdom. I love what David says in the Psalms when he says, I have been a young man and now I am old and I have never seen the children of the righteous men go hungry. I have often said, I can think of a thousand ways that God could fail me, and I can't think of a single one where he has. Remembering God's goodness and grace is key to fighting the allure of temptation to sin and doubt. Every good thing is from God and to God. He gives out of the riches of his love with whatever accords with our good. So 
The first key to enjoying God's good gifts is enjoying them from Him to His glory as the good things that they are. The second way to enjoy God's good gifts is to enjoy them the way He commands. God is the source of every blessing, and to ensure that every blessing is enjoyed to its fullest, He also gives those good things with His commands. In verse 17, Moses tells the people, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. You notice how Moses really plays up the goodness of what the people are about to receive? You're getting the best, guys. So as you go... Be careful. Obey what God has commanded. Do what is right and good in his sight so that you may not only receive this good gift, but so that you may also prosper in it. Now, this is in contrast to the situation at Massa, which Moses refers to in verse 16. If, if you go back to Exodus 17, you'll read about how Israel was making its way from Egypt to the promised land. And as they were going, they were going through a desert and they came to a place where there was no water for them to drink, nothing for their, their children, nothing for their, their flocks, nothing for themselves. And they started grumbling. In fact, they began to complain. They were, they were thirsty. And who doesn't complain when they're thirsty or hungry? But there was, this was deeper. In their words, they showed that rather than trusting in the Lord to provide for their needs, rather than coming to Moses and coming to the Lord humbly and saying, Lord, we need water. Please provide for us. Instead, they questioned God's motives and his purpose. In fact, they, they came to Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill our children and our livestock with thirst? What kind of question is that? Understand that the people weren't, this isn't just them being angry and, 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 and are just asking for water. They are angry. They're actually accusing Moses and the Lord of wanting to destroy them. If the Lord had wanted to destroy him, destroy them, he would have just done it in Egypt. That's why Moses says they tested the Lord at Massah. Rather than trusting the Lord, they put him to the test. They questioned him and accused him. And although God graciously provided for them with water from the rock, in spite of all that, Moses warns this generation not to follow the example of their parents. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Rather, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. The opposite of testing the Lord is trusting the Lord, and trusting the Lord is obedience to the Lord. The commands of God are meant to instruct us. They are designed to make us prosper. They provide boundaries that protect us from wandering into sin. To the worldly, God's commands seem restrictive because they restrict us from things that would destroy us. But in reality, God's commands are meant to keep us from plunging down into the way of death. No one, no one thinks that guardrails on the side of the highway restrict you from freely driving. They don't. Traveling for, uh, to Georgia and South Carolina from uh, Wisconsin, many times I have driven on these steep mountain roads, oftentimes at night, and sometimes I'm kind of glad it's at night because I can't see the drop-off. You go up and down through the Smoky Mountains. 
Never once have I ever felt while driving on those roads like my freedom was restricted by the concrete barrier. They, I know that they're there to keep me from plunging down the mountain to certain death below. I'm thankful that there's a barrier there. When you drive on the road, those lines of paint, well, in Wisconsin, I don't suppose you, we have cracks in the pavement. Um, those lines are not meant to restrict your freedom. They're there to enable it, to make sure that you're driving safely and securely on the road. And that is the way we should think about God's commands. God's commands are not meant to be burdensome. They are not meant to restrict your freedom. They are there to enable your freedom, to live in the right way, to enjoy God's good blessings to the full. One of the greatest lies that Satan has managed to sell time in, time and time again, is to convince us that God's rules are restrictive when they are really for our good. Satan is a master at playing on that fleshly impulse to resist being told what we're being, or doing what we're told because his aim is to destroy us. His aim is to get us to lower those guardrails and to see us smashed on the side of the mountain. The rules and the commands of the Lord are good. They are not petty. As a parent, I demand that Titus and Rebecca obey me, not because I have some kind of control complex, Though sometimes parents do do that. Sometimes parents act abusively in that and abuse that power. But the reason I demand obedience is because I want Titus and Rebecca to be safe. I want them to be happy. I want them to enjoy, be free to enjoy things the right way. So I command them not to play under the car, not to run out in the road, not to get in a car with a stranger, because I love them and because I know those things will destroy them. I, I teach them to eat their food and brush their teeth and wash their hands because I want them to be healthy. I require them to listen and obey, and I punish them when they don't because I love them and because God requires this of me as their dad, because he loves them even more than I do. None of that restricts their freedom. To the contrary, it equips them to live freely, to thrive, and enjoy the good blessings that God has given them. The commands of the Lord are good. They are right, and they are meant to enable us to enjoy his good blessings the right way. God has told us what he wants from us. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. That is the spirit of the commands of God. The commands of the Lord teach us how to live and enjoy his good blessings. They, they are a way, the way of justice. They teach us to have a heart of love and of kindness, and they show us how to walk humbly with the Lord, to be satisfied and content in him and in nothing less. The problem even though we hear that, and though we know it is true, is that apart from God's redemptive work in us, we have no ability to keep these commands. And that brings us to the third critical way that we enjoy God's good gifts. We enjoy God's gifts the right way by the grace he supplies us through the redemption that we have in his son. In verse 20, Moses anticipates a conversation between people who are listening to him now and their children. 
When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out of there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do these statutes, to, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before our Lord our God as he has commanded us. The exodus from Egypt was a nation-defining moment for Israel. They went from being slaves under the oppression of a tyrant to receiving the land and the promise God had given their fathers to dwell as a free people with their God. The story of Exodus is the story of how God saved his people with a mighty hand from the evil tyranny of a foreign power. He heard their cries and exalted his might in the sight of all the world so that when the world saw Israel, they saw, in fact, the glory of the God of all the earth. God took Israel from the lowest of lows and set them up to be a beacon of light to all the nations to see that there is only one true God. In the prophets of Isaiah and Micah, we read about how in the Lord's work of restoration, he's going to, he was going to make Israel the beacon of light to which all the nations of the earth flowed to. Moses tells these parents to answer their children about why they were called to keep these commandments, why they, they spoke of the law of the Lord as they did when they were coming, when they were going, when they were sitting in their house, when they were going to bed, when they, they, how they posted them on their doorways, and how they lived as if the law itself was written on their eyes and written on their hands. He tells them to remind their children that God is their Savior, their Redeemer, and so he is also their right law giver. He is their king. Israel had a special relationship with God, which he made with them of his own choosing. He took them, he made them into a great people. He rescued them from the oppression of wicked men. He exalted himself over their enemies, and he showed the world his glory, taking them from slavery and oppression and making them his people. And then he gave them his command to teach them how to walk in holiness before him. He made them to be reflections of his own goodness and grace. He made them to practice justice and to defend the innocent. He called them to kindness and love. He called them to, he called them to, to live as recipients of his blessings. That is why God gave them the law. The purpose of the law was to teach and guard them. The purpose of the law was to guide them in the way of humility and grace. The purpose of the law was to make them live and flourish, living in obedience to it. Notice verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do these commands. So, and looking at what Moses has said about the law and instructing the people how to think about this, we see that the commands of the Lord are not arbitrary. They are not petty. 
They are meant to guide God's people in how to enjoy his blessings. The problem is that no one, not one of us, can obey the law fully. So instead of being a way of life to us, the law rails against us as our judge. It condemns us. In Romans 7, Paul explains that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And yet it is death that has mastery over us through the law. We are condemned by it because of the sin that is in us. Paul explains, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. This is Israel's story. After all, having the commands and the blessings of God, having the warnings, they still sinned against the Lord. They broke his law and his covenant. The law, in the end, really serves to show human weakness to show us that just as Israel could not free itself from the tyranny of Pharaoh, much more are we unable to free ourselves from the tyranny of sin. We cannot enjoy God's good gifts until we are set free from that curse, that curse of sin and death. And so as we read what Moses has written here, this promise of life and goodness, we find ourselves having our eyes move forward looking at the one who can, in fact, set us free, who can make us righteous and holy and able to live in obedience. We find ourselves looking to Christ and his grace. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. We cannot enjoy the benefits of God's blessing as long as we are bound to sin. Christ came to set us free. He bore our sin in himself on the cross and made atonement for that sin. He delivered us from the demands of the law to make us holy and righteous in him, to make us alive in his resurrection, and to set within us a new heart with right motives, equipping us with his own Holy Spirit so that we might walk as he himself walks. Friends, this is ultimately how we come to enjoy God's good blessings. People who do not trust in Christ, they can still enjoy God's good gifts, but not to the extent that a Christian should. We enjoy God's good gifts as a people who have been redeemed. To a, as, as a people who, who do not cast the things of the world into a pit that cannot be filled, but who have been filled with a life-giving flow of the fountain of Christ. We cannot hope to be set free from the allure of worldliness from any other means. We cannot enjoy the blessing that God has poured out on us the right way apart from that work either, since it's by grace through faith that we are equipped to enjoy and use the things of the world without submitting to them as our greatest treasure. It's because of Christ's victory over the world that we are able to have victory over the world, to live for eternity and not just for tomorrow. Again, Richard Alleen puts it well when he says, a true Christian knows that Christ is all and in all to him, and that he is a sufficient reward and a sufficient safeguard. He thereupon can be content in all his wants and patient under all his sufferings. He who can say, 
God is my portion, whether I want or abound. I have never so much, but I have need of God. I have never so little, but that I shall find God to be all-sufficient. Is he who can say, God is my refuge, whether I am safety or in danger. I am never in such hazards, but in God I am secure. I am never so out of hazard, but I need his security. That is how we live and enjoy God's good gifts. We do it by his grace as a redeemed people. So the key to enjoying God's good gifts is to enjoy them in their goodness as from him. It is to enjoy them as he has commanded and instructed us. And it is to enjoy them in the grace we have received from Christ. In this way, we are able to be content whatever we have or whatever we don't have because our treasure is laid up for us in heaven with Christ. Our portion is with God, who is our loving Father, who will never forsake us or give us less than what we need when we need it. Our, our delight is not in what we have here and now, but it is in the eternal life that we have received by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for the good gifts that you have given us. Lord, we have so much reason to rejoice this morning. You are faithful and true. You give us everything we need when we need it. You know our needs, Father. You know the number of the hair on our heads. You show your regard for us. And that even though you are the one who made the universe, you are also the one who knows the most minute detail. You created the fish and the sea. You created creatures we do not even know exist yet for your glory, for your pleasure. And you created us to know you and love you, to fill ourselves in you. This is the greatest happiness. And Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes that are heavenward, that we would not look to the things of this earth to fill us, but that we would use the things of this earth that you have given us for your glory and your name's sake as a means for making much of you. Lord, help us to use the riches you have poured out on us in such a way as to show that these things are not our treasure, Christ is. And I pray, Father, that as we do, this world will see and know that we have something amazing and that they would want to have that as well. That the that the, the fragrance of Christ would go out and as it does, that people would see the light of Christ and hope in him. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.